0: Your obedience to the truth, for a sincere, blank, blank one another earnestly from a pure heart. Pass your papers to the front of your rows. What's the word? Love, love. So if we were we were to step back and say, God above all else greater than anything more important to you to be found in the heart of people. What is it? Well, those verses are clear. It's love. What is great and first to him on what depends all the law and the prophets of what can Jesus summarize all that he taught and said What is the greatest of the trilogy that includes faith and hope? What is the only thing that counts for something? What's the distinguishing mark of God's spirit in our lives? What above all are we to put on? What binds everything together in perfect harmony? What was the aim, the goal of all the apostles preaching, teaching, discipling, equipping, correcting, admonishing, encouraging? And what does Peter here tell us to do above all? One answer one word, love. That's pretty staggering if you think about it, which means the text that we're coming to this morning is massively important to God. And it should be massively important to us because the theme of these verses from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3 is found in verse 22 in the little words Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is in fact, the fourth command so far that Peter has given in the letter. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter one, he didn't hardly give any commands. All he did was describe all that God has done for us. In fact, chapter one, verse three, all the way through to chapter one, verse 12 is nothing but this glorious declaration of the gospel. It's nothing but all that God has done to make us his children, to secure for us an eternal inheritance, to protect us for that inheritance, to make sure that it's never snatched away from us, to preserve us through difficulty and trial, and to bring us safely there one day. It's what the Old Testament talks about. It's what the angels long to look into. It's what the prophets prophesied. It's what the apostles preached. And then in light of that great good news, in light of that gospel, Peter gives three other commands preceding this one. Do You remember where those are? Chapter one, verse 13, Peter says, therefore, in light of the gospel, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his first command. Fix your hope there on everything that I'm telling you about. Set your hope there. And then in verse 15, he calls them to, in light of that, be holy. Pursue conformity to the character of God. And then in verse 17, he calls them to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then in verse 22, he reminds them to love one another deeply. So, He's been talking about sort of the way they're supposed to act personally. They're to be holy. They're to set their hope fully on grace. They are to conduct themselves with fear. And now he's transitioning. He's making a conscious transition, which is going to move us all the way through the rest of the letter. Now he focuses on the community, the body of Christ, the church. And he's turning his focus, not so much from vertical, what God has done for us, and not so much inward, how we personally respond to it in our moral conduct and behavior, but how it works itself out in the daily grind of relationship with fellow sinners in the church of Christ. That's where he's going. And this morning we're going to consider this truth, that love an earnest, deep, fervent, committed love for each other is only possible through being born again by the word of God, by having our souls purified, and by aggressively fighting against the anti-love sin in our lives. That's where he's going. That the love that is to characterize us as a people and that is to characterize the church of Christ at large is to be a love that is deep and earnest and fervent and committed. But it's only possible through God's work in us and through our response to that work by aggressively pursuing what God wants to do in us and what he has done in us. So we're going to look at this text under three headings. I want to talk three things about, talk about three things related to love this morning. First, the quality of love. In other words, what kind of love is to characterize us as believers? Secondly, the source of love. Where does it come from? And then finally, the growth of love. How do we grow into it? How do we develop? How do we make progress? That's where we're headed. First of all, let's take a look at the quality of love. What kind of love does God call us as Christians to have for one another? Notice it's described in two ways in verse 22. It says, having your souls purified by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We'll come back to that. Love one another earnestly. There's there's a key word. From a pure heart or sincerely. So we've got the word sincere in verse 22, sincere brotherly love, and then love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So we've got this certain kind of love described. Sometimes the Bible just throws out the command, love one another. But Peter describes the kind of love he wants the church to have for each other. And he says it again later in the letter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse eight, when he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So he comes back and says it again later in the letter. And he says, above all, keep doing this. It's like, of all the things that I've told you, this is what I really want you to remember. I want you to remember to love one another earnestly. So what does the word earnestly mean? Well, it's translated differently. In the NIV, it's translated deeply. In the NASB, it's translated fervently. Here in the ESV, it's translated earnestly. In the message, it's interesting, translates it as if your life depended on it. It's getting at what this word earnestly is really all about. It actually comes from a combination of a couple of Greek words. And it comes from a verb, which literally means to stretch out, to stretch out. The idea is that what Peter wants is for the love between these believers, this mutual love that they're to have for one another, to be a love that extends itself and feels like it's stretching. I play guitar, not as much now as I used to, but... Uh, Early on, when I was when I was learning the guitar, I would always break strings in trying to change the strings because you have to keep the strings fresh, or they corrode and they get dirty. You get gunk from your fingers all over them, so you got to keep them sounding bright and new. So when I would buy strings, I would string it, and I didn't have either a guitar tuner or a good ear which you need one or one or more of those, probably both of them, but you need at least one of those in order to tune a guitar effectively. So all I did was just wind the string and wind the string and wind, and then guess, guess, guess. Is that too high? I don't know. I was three months in at that point. I didn't know what it should or shouldn't sound like. So I'm just picking at it. Ding, 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 ding. And then I just keep winding it, winding it, lo, lo and behold, pop. And it would normally hit me in the face or something. And... But every time I turn that string and hit it with my pick, you could hear it. It's getting tighter. It's getting tighter. It's stretching. And when I heard it, get, I'm like, okay, that might be too high. And sure enough, I'd keep winding it tighter and it'd pop. But the point is, is that those strings were stretching and stretching and stretching. And then the, an interesting thing about stringed instruments, those of you who know about these things, once you've tuned it, you put the new strings on, you've tuned it correctly. It's not done stretching out. In fact, you're gonna go pick it up the next day and it's gonna be out of tune. Right, Jim? <laughs> you're gonna try to play it and it's gonna sound terrible. And you're gonna have to retune it again because overnight the strings have been continuing to stretch and stretch and stretch. And you thought, wow, I didn't think those things could, I thought I stretched them out as much as I could. And lo and behold, there was still more stretching to happen. That's kind of what Peter's getting at here. He's getting at the idea that to love earnestly is to be extended. It's to be stretched. It's to, be, it's, to, it's to literally give yourself to love at the fullest possible capacity. To be willing to extend yourself. To be willing to be stretched by other people. You all know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it is to love someone. Those of you who are parents know this. Spouses, you know this. And you who have been in the church a long time, you know this. You know what it is to be extended, to be stretched, to, be, to, to have the limits of your love tested. And Peter says, go with that. Go with that. Be willing to be extended and stretched in that way. It's speaking of intensity and consistency in our love for each other. To go that extra mile again and again and again. We are to keep on loving one another with a deep love over the long haul. He's got a a big view of life and he's got a big view of sin and he's got a big view of trials and he's got a big view of grace. And he's saying it's going to take a lot of love for you all to make progress. You're to keep serving each other. You're to keep praying for each other. You're to keep speaking the truth to each other. You're to keep caring for one another. You're to keep extending yourselves for each other, forgiving each other, putting up with each other, confronting each other, walking with each other in the midst of challenges, obstacles, sins, trials, difficulties, uncertainties, all kinds of setbacks. And you're to do it sincerely. And that's our second word, sincerely, from the heart, willingly, eagerly, cheerfully. Cheerfully willing to be inconvenienced by the needs of others. We're to do it from the heart, out of an inner disposition and willingness to care for each other. It should flow from within as an expression of our true being. There's to be an eagerness to it, an utter absence of irritability and frustration. We're to be willing to be extended, stretched, challenged in our love, and to do it from the heart sincerely. He's talking length and depth here. And I don't know about you, but that kind of consistent, heartfelt love feels impossible to me. It feels impossible to me. And if it doesn't feel impossible to you, either you have resigned yourself to lovelessness, which could be the case, or you really don't understand what kind of love God's calling us to. You know why it feels impossible? Because it is impossible. By nature, by normal human sinful nature. You know, we are capable of convenient love. I am capable of convenient love, it's my favorite kind. To love when it doesn't involve any kind of stretch or challenge or difficulty when it's a love that conveniently fits right within the breaks built into my schedule when it's a love that doesn't cause me to have to extend myself or deny myself I'm great at that convenient love I'm also great at temporary sacrifice I'm willing to put up with it for a period of time but when you respond in progressive ungratefulness I'm tempted to pull back. We are good by nature at convenient love and temporary sacrifice, but we are not capable, and I'm talking by normal, unregenerate, sinful human nature, when we weren't in Christ, we are not capable of the kind of consistent, earnest, intense, sincere love for each other the way this verse is calling us to live because this verse is calling us to love one another with an outward commitment and an inner compulsion that's beyond natural human beings. You know, if the verse just talked about loving one another in an outward way, we could we could probably do that. It would be with a grumbling bad spirit and an irritability and low-grade frustration, but we could do it. But that's not what it's calling us to do. It's calling us to outward love with a cheerful spirit, with a willing spirit, not a grumbling, irritated love. Or maybe we could we could love if it were just an inward feeling, a sincere, loving disposition, but with no outward demonstration, but it's not calling us to do that either. We, we have to have a genuine willingness to care for each other not just a a willingness to care, but not doing anything about it, or that gives up after a short period of time out of frustration or discouragement with how our love's being interpreted or received. We are called by Peter here to a love that is constant in its action and consistent in its affection. Constant in its action and consistent in its affection. And anything less is not Christian love. So why do I say that this ability to love one another is incapable of being done apart from a sovereign work of God in our lives? Because that's what Peter teaches. And we're gonna move on to our second point now, the source of this love. Where does this deep, earnest, being willing to be extended, stretched out love come from? It comes from two sources, well, mainly one source that kind of works itself out in two different ways. The two key words that I'm thinking about here are in verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23. Verse 22, Peter says, "'Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth "'for a sincere brotherly love.'" So. This purification of the soul, which we're going to come back to and talk about what that means, this purification of the soul, the result of that purifying was a sincere brotherly love. So what gets in the way of sincere brotherly love is an unpurified soul. So if we have a purified soul, then one source has been given for loving this way. Verse 23 Peter starts off that verse with the word since notice the flow, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. So it's being born again that enables us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So it's those two words. Those words are very important. So it's from this purified soul and from this being born again that we are enabled to, Love one another earnestly. Now let's stop and let that just sink in for a second, okay? It took a supernatural work of new birth in our lives and a cleansing of our soul in order to love one another the way God wants. Let that humble us. Let that just have a humbling effect on us. That it took that to make me a loving person. But... If before I go on, let me say this. If that is not an indictment of our sinful self-centeredness and ability to love well, I don't know what is. That's a huge indictment that it took sovereign power, raising you from the dead to love one another. But that's not Peter's primary motivation in writing that. He doesn't just wanna say, be humbled by this reality. His main point is be encouraged by this reality. Be encouraged. If God has caused you to be born again and has cleansed your soul by the blood of Jesus, you have what you need to love this way. Everything you need, the source is provided to you. It's not impossible. And surely that's deeply encouraging for any Christian like me who feels worthless in their ability to love well at times. It was very encouraging to me. But that doesn't help us totally because we still haven't talked about what these phrases mean. What exactly do these two phrases, having your soul purified by your obedience to the truth, that's phrase number one, that's source number one, And then, source number two, having been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What are those two things doing, and how does that make us loving? That's what I want to talk about. We'll take them one at a time. All right. First of all, verse 22 having your souls purified. Notice the tense of the verb, it is something that has already happened it is actually in the greek indicating a word that has a had a definitive point in time that where it actually happened but has ongoing effects in our lives it's something that definitively happened but is continuing to have effect and what happened to us was having our souls purified by our obedience to the truth so we get our souls purified by obeying the truth, but what does it mean to obey the truth and what is the purification of the soul all about? Those of you who caught Pastor Sam's sermon on Acts fifteen nine, if you didn't, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's very good. That's what Peter's talking about. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. Pastor Sam's sermon was all on Acts fifteen nine about having our hearts cleansed by faith. And he was talking about it happening at conversion but it has ongoing effects in our lives. That's what Peter's talking about. When Peter says that we had our souls purified by our obedience to the truth, he's saying this. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Peter has been describing throughout the beginning part of this letter, that Jesus lived for us and he died in our place for our sins and he rose again on the third day, and we can have new life in him. When you heard that gospel and you believed it, you obeyed it, you repented of sin, you entrusted yourself to Christ. At that moment, your soul was purified. In the language of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, you were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And your soul was washed clean. So in the context, obedience to the truth means responding favorably to the word of truth. That's what he's talking about at the end of verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. He's thinking back to when the gospel was originally preached to them and they received it, obeyed it, believed it. And what happened to them as a result? They were converted. They were saved. Their souls were purified through their obedience to that truth. Therefore, it's by responding favorably to the word of truth that our souls are purified and enabled to love one another. Because they're washed of defilement. Secondly, verse 23, since you have been born again. Now, Peter's not thinking of two different events here. He's not thinking of there's this time where you were born again and there's this time where your souls were purified. He's thinking about the perspective from God's perspective and our experience. He says, God, what God was doing in your life is he was causing you to be born again through the word of God. You were hearing that good news preached. That message about what Jesus did, who he is, what he he came to do, all about your sin, all about how you've fallen short of the glory of God, all about how Jesus has lived in your place and died your death and rose again. And you heard that message and you believed that message. He's saying what was going on behind the scenes is God was operating in your life by a sovereign, powerful work of the Holy Spirit that caused you to be born again. Through that message. The Spirit accompanied that message and brought you to life through it. That's what he says. You were born of imperishable seed. He's thinking back to conception. He's using a birth analogy. He's saying when you were born again, seed came into you. And it was the Spirit of God riding upon the Word of God, the Gospel, and woke you up, made you alive, transformed your soul. And as a result... You obeyed the truth and you went to Jesus and you had your soul purified. That's what he's talking about. So the gospel was preached that through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, everything we need to be fully accepted by God has been provided. Jesus has lived the life we could never live, a life of perfect love for God and others, and died the death we deserve to die, taking our punishment on the cross for our self-centeredness, lack of love, love for ourselves, which gave rise to all kinds of sin, so that by believing this message, repenting of our sin, we'd be freely forgiven, accepted, and brought into the living hope Peter has been talking about. And he said, when you heard that message, the Spirit blessed it. You came to life. You went to Christ. You obeyed him. And came to Christ, and your soul was purified and made clean. So, this means that our experience in coming to Jesus, believing the gospel, what Peter says, obeying the truth here, having our souls cleansed, all that was initiated by God. All that was initiated by prior love. That's what Pastor Ted was referring to last week with election that God's prior love for us caused him to bring the gospel to us, caused him to bring us to life through that message, caused us to provide a way by which we could have our unpurified souls purified through the blood of Christ and provided the response that we needed, namely the gift of faith. And all that was provided for you So he's actually saying that in order for us to love one another earnestly, we have to have a deep personal experience with the love of God ourselves. Until we get that, we will love poorly. The the main reason that you and I struggle as we do to love one another well is not because we don't try hard. It's because we have not experienced deep enough God's great love for us. Bottom line. Bottom line. It is a gospel amnesia and experiential problem. And we all struggle with it. And the Bible anticipates that we will. Which is why we have 1 Peter and preaching and reminders and a Bible to read because we need to be reminded. So what keeps us from loving well initially outside of Christ is an experience with the gospel. And what keeps us from really making progress and loving well in Christ is ongoing experience with the gospel. Here's the way Ed Clowney puts it. The love that binds the redeemed flows from the love of the redeemer. Christian love is the love of grace, the love of compassion. For such love to appear, the pride and selfishness of our alienation from God must be swept away. Sounds like an unpurified soul, doesn't it? They must be replaced by a heart made new with the motives of grace. Born again. Peter shows how both needs are to be met. It's the word of God, the good news of the gospel that is the means both of our new birth and our growth in holiness. Because God's love is the source of ours, the message of his love is what kindles ours. I'll say that again, because that's worth repeating. Because God's love is the source of our love, the message of his love is what kindles our love. And that's why Peter reminds them of what's happened to them. That's why Peter reminds them of the good news that he preached to them and how that good news wasn't just any old message. It was a message that came from God through a word that is living and abiding and imperishable. And it's going to last forever though. We're going to die and be forgotten in three generations. The word of God will stand and He says, that was what was preached to you. And that's what caused you to be born again. And that's what made your soul pure as you obeyed it and came to Christ and had your soul washed clean. Remember that? Doesn't that fill you with gratefulness? Doesn't that remind you of who you were? Doesn't that remind you of God's great love for you that he would do that for you when he doesn't do it for everybody? Then love one another earnestly from a heart just like God has pursued you with such earnest love. His son was crushed. That's what he's talking about. He's getting at the gospel and he's working it into their DNA. And he's, he's like a good apostle who learned it from a good savior. And he's saying, this Jesus whom I walked with, who showed me at Peter, an apostle who wasn't a very good lover, who nevertheless went to the cross for me, laid his life down for me in the midst of my betrayal, in the midst of my stubbornness, in the midst of my ignorance on a lot of things, Jesus went to the cross, paid my debt, forgave my sin, raised me from the dead, gave me life and hope and purpose, called me into a community of faith and called me to love these people like Jesus has loved me. Now, let me make some application here. And then we're gonna have to quickly move on to the, to the last point maybe maybe you 're here this morning and 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 you're you 're not a christian or you 're not sure you 're a christian and and you you really think i 'm getting worked up about stuff that 's really not all that big a deal and and my response to you, if you feel that way, is this: this is a huge deal this is a huge deal to God this is the reason that God this was the motive. Love was the motive in the heart of God. Love, love was the purpose of, of conversion, that we would, that we would be a love, become loving people. And, and all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flower of the field. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't really care about becoming a loving person, what in the world is preoccupying your mind? What is it that's so important to you that's more important than giving your life and a life of love for others when that's why you're made? Let me just remind you what he says here. All flesh is like grass. We're all dying. And all of our glory, all of our present strength, all of our achievements, all of our successes, all of our significance, all of our identity is going away. And the only thing that's really going to matter is whether or not in the end, was God magnified in our existence. And the only way that's going to happen is if we experience what Peter says these people have experienced. Namely, being born again through the word, having your soul washed clean and put on a path where you have a new goal for your life. Namely, to love others well to the glory of God. Or maybe you're a Christian here and you're saying, okay, or, or not, you're not a Christian here. And you're thinking, okay, I do care about loving well. In fact, I'm trying to love well. That's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Becoming a Christian means that you love other people. I mean, that's what it's all about. The way I become a Christian is by trying to be a loving person. No, that's not the way you become a Christian. That's what Peter said had to happen to you in order to make you a loving person. So in order to make somebody a loving person, they have to become a Christian. It's not reversed. See, so many people we talk to think that the way you become a Christian is by trying to love people and care about people and love God and all that. When that's the result, that's the result of being born again. That's the result of having our souls purified. That's the result of all of that. So I would just say, don't get the cart before the horse. Come to Christ, experience God's love, and then be put on a path to love But most of us here this morning are thinking how in the world can i grow in that i mean i know that i know that my soul's been purified i know that i've been born again i i know that but i still struggle i still wrestle with this and i would say me too so let's get on with the verses and see what peter has to say chapter 2 verse 1 he starts to launch in here so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. In other words, the first way that we make progress and growing is by getting rid of and making war on anti-love in our lives. That's the way we make progress. We have got to see that stuff for what it is, hate it and get rid of it. We got to get rid of attitudes and habits and actions that are just feeding non-love. What are some of those? Well, well, Peter doesn't give us the option of choosing. <laughs> he says, put away all malice and all deceit, all of it. Get rid of all of it. You see anything that's, lo- that's not loving, fight against it. And he says, get rid of first of all malice. That is ill intent in any actions that are harmful to others. If you want to hurt people or harm people or wish bad for them, That's malice. That's not love. Get rid of that. Guile, or it's translated deceit here in the ESV. That is deceitfulness. Get rid of speaking or acting with ulterior motives. Anything less than speaking the full and honest truth from the heart. Get rid of being selfish and two-faced and deceiving other people. Get rid of that. Be an honest, authentic person. Get rid of deceit. Don't play don't don't put on masks. Don't try to manipulate situations. Don't be don't have ulterior motives. Get rid of hypocrisy. Masking inward evil with an outward show of kindness. Don't do that. We should be able to see right through each other in the church of Christ. We should be able to see no guile, no deceit. That person is who that person is by God's grace. I know them. We should have that kind of knowledge of each other. We shouldn't have to be guessing. Is is that person, is there malice there? Is there deceit there? Is there hypocrisy there? No. You should say, I should not be surprised by anything that I find in my brothers and sisters. Now we're going to find sin in each other. But we're not, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But what we shouldn't find is motives and motivations that are hurtful and harmful and evil. He says, get rid of all that. He says, get rid of envy. If you can't love somebody, you can't love somebody, you can't care for somebody if you're not, if you're covetous toward what they have and who they are. Envy rots love. And so Peter says, we got to get rid of it. We should be thankful for the good that comes to others and that will feed love. Slander. Any speech which harms or is intended to harm another person. What we say with our mouths that tarnishes reputations, what we say with our mouths that undermines people's character and their view in the eyes of other people, that's got to be put away. That's got to be gotten rid of. In fact, in first Peter three, verse sixteen, Peter says, Yet do do it, that is, speaking the truth of the gospel and giving a reason for the defense that's in you. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know what's going on there? He's saying slander is something that non-believers do against believers. It's not something that believers should do against believers. You're, you're in the wrong camp if you're slandering. That's with people who hate Christians. So how much more should we who are in Christ be committed to getting rid of slander if that's something that we receive from an unbelieving world? Peter David summarizes it well. He says, Deceit is practiced to a person's face when one speaks only nicely of him or her, but for the person with envy and malice within, the insincerity will come out as he or she criticizes the person's to others in the person's absence. In this list, Peter has neatly cut. The ground for any practice other than open truth and love among members of the Christian community. Christians should be able to trust that no ulterior motives lie behind other fellow believers actions and that nothing is said in their absence that has not already been said to their face. In this church, we should never, ever, ever, ever under any circumstances ever discover that something was said about us that was not said to us. especially something that damages our reputation because that falls under the category that Peter says we should be getting rid of that stuff. So, say, so ask yourself, is stuff like that out there? Is, is, have, you, have you done things like that? Have you thrown it out there? It's out there. And I'm just telling you, it's coming back soon. It, they're gonna hear about it. And that's gonna damage our corporate testimony. So I would call you humbly, graciously, in light of the love that Jesus has and still has for you to pursue and remedy that situation, to go tell that person before they hear it from somebody else. Howard Marshall says, love acts for the good of the other person. It does not practice cunning or act as a mask for selfish motives. It is honest and open in its dealings. Love does not desire to be better than other people or destroy other people's reputations. It rejoices in the success of others and is glad to give them praise and condemnation commendation. Now, very quickly, and I'm gonna hit this and close. We not only get rid of the, the anti-love practices but we crave pure spiritual milk. That's what Peter says. Like newborn babies, verse two, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's the, what's the pure spiritual milk he's talking about? Let me ask you this question. What in this context has Peter been talking about that feeds, nourishes life in people? Like babies receiving milk from their mothers or like Piper does with, with my wife when she wants milk. What's that what's the nourishment that's been it's the word of god it's the word of god that's what gives that's what gives us life that's what sustains life that's what's enduring that's what's abiding that's what he's talking about and then he says long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up so we are to long for god's word and what god's word wants to do in us this is not talk this verse is not talking about read your bible every day if you don't you're not craving the pure spiritual milk you sorry, Christian. It's talking about craving what God's word says and what it wants to do in us. So when we hear things like that, we're like, yes, God, make me. I want to do it. I want to go with what you want to go with. I want to move in that direction. I crave that. I want to be that kind of person because that's what your word says I should be. That's what craving it is all about craving the pure. I want to grow up into salvation. I want to be a mature Christian. I want to be a better, more loving person now than I am or that I was five years ago or that. And I want to be more so 10 years from now. I want to keep growing and making progress in that. And to do that, he says, steep yourself in the gospel, steep yourself in the Bible, steep it. And then don't just steep yourself there in some sort of, you know, mind way, but let it shape your heart and your life and inform the way you behave and what you long for. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you, do you know that all of God's word wants to feed your happiness? It wants to serve your joy. It wants to, then let him do what he wants to do in your life. That's what Peter's saying. You've tasted the Lord is good. You know what God's word produces in our lives. It produces good things. And when we ignore it and we disobey it, it produces bad fruit and, saying, don't ignore this. Love one another earnestly from the heart. Well, let me close. Christians, that's what most of us are in this room. We're falling in two camps this morning, right? Even as Christians. On this side, we may have some of us in this room profess to know Christ who have gotten used to loving poorly. We've just sort of given up on trying to be a more loving person. And then we've got people over here, which I assume is the vast majority of us, which is we want to so much love people better than we do. And we feel like such failures that we can't love people well. So to you this morning who are standing over here, who want to love well, take what Peter said and work out your salvation, grow up into it, get rid of those anti-love practices, dwell in the gospel, Remind yourself of who God is and what God's done for you and then crave it. Go with it. And to those of us over here who have got, perhaps gotten used to loving what, loving poorly and are just really indifferent to the whole thing, I would ask you this question. If you want to remain in that condition, how in the world can you be sure that you're born again? And how in the world can you be sure that your soul has been purified? Because purified souls... And people who are born again are over there. So I would call you to prove it by your desire to respond to God's word in obedience. I would say, you're here and let's go. Let's go after it. Let's pray. Father, you are kind to us. You are good to us. You have demonstrated that in this text this morning by what you have done for us in Christ. You've caused us to be born again. You've raised us from spiritual death you've called us out of a life of self and sin and you've put us in in your son and we've experienced his love for us in our wretchedness and we thank you that you have made us, you have provided everything that we need to be a loving community and there's so many evidences of that grace among us. We could list them Thank you for the unbelievable stretching that has taken place in the history of this congregation. We could list the ways that people have extended themselves and laid their lives down to care and serve joyfully. And for that, we give you praise. And we ask that it would be more and more and more characteristic of us. Not because we're merely trying harder, although although that is certainly a dimension of it, We have to get rid of those practices, but because we have been reminded again of who you are, what you've done and what you've called us to be. And that it's all for our good in Jesus name. Amen.